After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up, he, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, he is good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. So the reading of God's word, let us pray again. Our Lord and our God, we pray that as we hear the reading and preaching of your word, that we would feed upon it, feast upon it, that you would fill us and give us spiritual energy to serve you. Give us understanding. All this by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Well, according to the uh, pundits of worldly wisdom, uh, sometimes people experience an identity crisis. And uh, an identity crisis, we are told, is a time at which a person feels uncertain regarding his or her role in society. And a person begins to ask questions. Who am I? Why am I here? And, and uh, with whom should I be aligned? And, and all of these things. And in our passage for this morning, there is indeed an identity crisis. And I think it is twofold. First of all, I think the crisis is with the people um, other than Jesus that we meet in our passage this morning. The Jews and those talking about who Jesus is there a little later in our passage, but also even Jesus' brothers. Because, and I say that they have this identity crisis, because um, they really don't want to see who they are before God Himself. And also there is an identity crisis because, as we see here, there are those complaining, they're discussing, debating the answer to the question, who is this Jesus. And so as we read John's Gospel, especially in this section, that's the question we are forced to answer. Who exactly is this Jesus that John is revealing to us in his Gospel? To his brothers, he is merely a sibling. Uh, To the world, he is an object of its hate. To the Jews, he is a blasphemer. To some he is good, and to others he is a deceiver. And so we must answer the question, well, who is Jesus to me? 
And who is Jesus in reality? That's ultimately the question we must answer. As uh, verse um, 2 notes, it is at the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, we need to know a little bit about that, especially later in the chapter when Jesus says a few things related to the Feast of the Tabernacles. Um, and before, before I say something about that, I, I need to note this. And, and that is, by the time we come to chapter 7, uh, several uh, months, in fact, six, more than that, six to seven months have transpired. And we know that because early in chapter 6, in verse 4, John tells us it was the time of the Passover. And so in our present text in chapter 7, again, it is the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. The Passover is in the spring, and that's why we celebrate Easter usually in April or that time of the year. And then uh, the Feast of Tabernacles would have happened in October. So six to seven months, something like that had transpired since chapters six, or chapter six, and then chapter seven. And so this whole time, as verse one says, Jesus was walking in Galilee. Now about the Feast of Tabernacles, what was it? It was also called the Feast of Booths, B-O-O-T-H-S, Feast of Booths. You can read about it in Leviticus 23, also Deuteronomy 16. It was one of the three annual feasts of the Old Testament that required Jewish men to attend it in Jerusalem. And uh, so if men lived outside of the city, um, they would make that journey to the city, the holy city, and observe that week-long or so feast of tabernacles. And during that time, they may have brought some children with them. They may have brought their whole family with them. And all throughout Palestine, they would set up these tents, these booths, um, hearkening back to Israel's wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, kind of reenacting that a little bit. And at this time, they would feast. They would observe the Sabbath. They would offer their gifts in the temple. And they would remember God's special provision for them during that time in Israel's history. Historians tell us that there were many multitudes, myriads of Jewish people to come and descend upon the city so that these tents were everywhere, sometimes on housetops, in the street, by the street, corners, alleys, and so forth. And so the, the city then would be well populated, we might say overpopulated at this time. And that's important as we continue this morning. And so really, verses 1 through 13 set up the rest of the chapter and what is going to happen in chapters 8 and 9 as well. And we will come back to this whole concept of the Feast of Tabernacles, Lord willing, in the weeks ahead. And so there in verse 1, we find Jesus um, retiring, as some say, from His public ministry. Not for good. It's a retreat. Um, it is a withdrawal from his public ministry. He's walking in Galilee, not walking in Judea. And uh, what was he doing? Well, my guess is, as we look at the other Gospels and so forth, this would have been a time where he would um, teach his disciples. He would continue uh, to heal those who were sick. He did not spend his time idly. Uh, just, you know, hanging out, things like that. He had a purpose. He was on a mission. 
Ultimately, that mission was to go up that hill called Calvary and to obey his father. Um, this area in Galilee contained that city called Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. He perhaps saw family and old friends, and uh, he continued doing that. Well, why did he do this? Well, in verse 1, we're told, um, because the Jews sought to kill him. Remember, the Jews often in John's gospel refers to the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, the scribes, the Pharisees. And we already know from chapter 5 uh, and verse 18, they sought to kill him. They were making plans. They were plotting a scheme to have him crucified. Why? Well, they hated him, obviously. He spoke against them. He, as in chapter 5, it says, made himself to be equal with God. He healed on the Sabbath. And in our last chapter, 6, we find that he actually called people to eat his flesh and to drink his blood. Not to commit cannibalism, but to believe in him, to receive him by faith, to partake of him in that way. And so the plot is thickening. Jesus knows it. So he retreats to Galilee. And as Matthew records for us in chapter 10, verse 23, Jesus practices what he preaches because there he told his disciples when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. And so that's what he did. And so there in verse 2, again, we're told it was the time of this feast. And so in verses 3 and 5, Jesus' brother really want him to take advantage of the crowds that will be in Jerusalem. It says there in verse 3, His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. And you go, they go on. So they want to know, Jesus, okay, you're wandering out here, you're walking. Are you going to attend this feast? And will you take this as an opportunity? I mean, I think... His brothers here are operating as his campaign managers. He needs to do damage control. Why? Because in chapter 6, in verse 66, after he said these hard sayings, John tells us from that time many of his, quote, disciples went back and walked with him no more. So here's an opportunity to win back the many. In fact, even more. And his brothers are saying this. And by the way, Jesus did have brothers. We could say they were half-brothers. Uh, they probably were not the sons, and I think even daughter too, of Joseph, but another man. And uh, that tells us that Mary did not uh, live in perpetual virginity, as some have erroneously said. But his brothers here, they want to know, what are you going to do, Jesus? Are you going to make this opportunity? Are you going to take it? And use it to your advantage. <clears throat> and the problem with them is near, if not the same problem, as those who ate the bread earlier in chapter 6. They see Jesus as a political Messiah who will be a ruler over an earthly kingdom, an earthly Jerusalem. Not the spiritual kingdom, not the spiritual Jerusalem which is above, as Hebrews talks about. And so if you were just to, to show again his credentials, and notice what they tell him to do, is to show his works, to really manifest his works. They don't tell him, okay, you know, tweak your message a little bit. They don't even say, you know, 
anything about his message because they know what he will preach. And that causes controversy. It stirs the crowds. And so in John 7 and verse 5 there, the writer tells us why they acted this way, why they thought this way. Verse 5, 4, even his brothers did not believe in him. There's a connection between their counsel, their advice, and their unbelief. Mark that well. There's a connection between the counsel they give Jesus and their own unbelief. John is highlighting that for us. And he says, even his own brothers did not believe in him. And they say, if you do these things, there seems to be a mockery here. They are doubting him. And remember where that doubt probably comes from. We know where it comes from elsewhere when Jesus goes into the wilderness in Matthew 4 to be tested by the devil. If you are the Son of God. And later while he's on the cross, they will say, if you are the Son of God, cast yourself down. And you see who is behind that. And Jesus will tell them this in John chapter 8. You are of your father, the devil. But what are we to make of their unbelief and the counsel that they give to Jesus? Well, I think there's a principle here. And the principle goes something like this. A misunderstanding of Jesus' true identity as Messiah leads to a misguided approach to the Christian cause. Let me say that again. Based on what we see between this connection between their counsel and their unbelief, Jesus' brothers, we see that a misunderstanding of Jesus' true identity as Messiah leads to a misguided approach to the Christian cause. And that misunderstanding flows from an unbelieving heart. You know, in the last century, um, we saw this with liberalism, liberal theology, which sought to articulate Christianity in terms of contemporary culture and thinking. You know, the, the idea there is to be relevant, to be relevant, and to gain a following. And so in that system, Jesus was merely our moral example and would lead the way for social, political change. And after that came liberation theology. Maybe you have heard of that before. And similar to liberal theology, it was basically an outworking of it. Um, under that system, theology was the way to initiate, again, social change through political action. And uh, in that system, Jesus was merely a Messiah of political involvement. And salvation under that system equated to the establishment of justice uh, for the poor and the oppressed. In our day and time, that is relevant, isn't it? I mean, we talk about CRT and that sort of thing. That's basically liberation theology on steroids without Christianity. The Bible does talk about justice. It does talk about true equity. We sing about all men with equity, Psalm 98a. It's a glorious psalm to sing, by the way. But there's a difference between what is out there today and what the Bible calls true justice and equity. That's a whole other topic for another time, but you see the point. 
If you misunderstand who Jesus is, if you misunderstand His office as Messiah, you will be misguided concerning the true Christian cause. And His brothers make that mistake here. We also see, as far as His brothers go, we see the need for conversion. There's another application of this scenario in this text here. Um, Because His own brothers are closest in proximity to Jesus, and yet they don't understand, they don't have saving faith, They need to be converted. Just because a person is in close proximity to the covenant community, the church of Jesus Christ, maybe mom and dad are Christians, brother or sister is Christian, grandmother is a Christian, does not mean that that person is automatically a Christian. They need to be converted, Matthew 18 says, and become like little children to confess Jesus as Lord, to confess the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, I want to give us hope here as well concerning these brothers. Uh, Turn to Acts chapter 1, just so you see this with your own eyes. Acts chapter 1. Jesus, of course, by this time has already gone to the cross. He's been raised from the dead. He's ascended back into heaven, seated at God's right hand. And he's going to pour out his Holy Spirit just as he has promised. So his disciples are waiting for him in Jerusalem, just as he commanded. And who is there? Well, there's a list given in chapter 1, and the list continues in verse 14 of Acts. It says, These all continued with one accord in prayer and in supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So I point that out because there is hope for those who have not understood the gospel and the person of Jesus fully. There is hope for their conversion. We don't know God's timetable when it comes to such. And we can pray and we can share the Lord Jesus with them. And then as we think about his brothers here, before we move on, let me just make this application to those of you who have a family divided because of the gospel. It says in our text, for even his brothers did not believe in him. Jesus' own siblings did not believe in him as the Messiah. He he lived with them. He he went to school and learned with them. He worked before them. And yet they did not believe. And so if you have unbelieving family members, this is the situation of our Savior as well at this time. And as Hebrews 4.15 says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus can. Jesus does sympathize with you who have unbelieving family members and close friends. And when they ridicule you, when they depart from you, Jesus knows. He feels it like you feel it. He suffers with us. And so we are to cast our cares upon Him, for He cares for us. And He will strengthen and support us in those situations. And so that's what His brothers do. They give Him this bad counsel. And so Jesus does Resist it. He will not budge, as we see there in verses 6 and following. He sends them on their way to Jerusalem without Him. 
Well, why does he do this? It says there in verse 6, Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. What does he mean when he says, My time has not yet come? If your version does not have the word yet in our text there or in verse 8, um, when he says, I'm not yet going up, it's because there's a variant in the Greek text. Half of them have it, half of them do not. And so the point is, that Jesus was not lying to them. He didn't change his mind. He, he was going to go, but he says his time had not come. What does he mean? Is he talking about his suffering, his death, his burial, his resurrection? That time, that hour? Or is he talking about it's simply not time for him to go to Jerusalem? I don't mean this to take a cop out. But I would answer yes. Both are true. Both apply. And in fact, when you talk about his burial, well, his sufferings, his death and burial and resurrection in the Gospel of John, this is the way that John likes to phrase it. This is the way evidently Jesus put it. In John chapter 8, verse 20, it says, No one laid hands on him, Jesus, for his hour had not yet come. He wasn't arrested. He wasn't taken into custody. Why? For his hour, his time had not yet come. However, in John 12, 23, Jesus speaks of the hour and he says it has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. He's speaking there of his death, burial, and resurrection. And of course, in chapter 13 and verse 1, it says there, at the feast of the Passover was the time that his hour had come. You see, Jesus is the Passover. He is our Passover. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It was at the time of Passover that He would fulfill all of that Old Testament imagery and typology. The Old Testament sacrifices. His time had not come at the Feast of Tabernacles. He was on a divine timetable. Think about this. In Ephesians 1.11, it says there that God works all things after the counsel of His own will. I mean, Ephesians 1, this glorious chapter of the Apostle Paul, where we get to see who is working things, who is moving things behind the scenes. It's God. He elects some unto salvation. He predestines some to the adoption of sons. And then there Paul says He he works all things according to His counsel, His decree, what He has determined. Before time began. And so in our own catechism, the reformers put it this way, that God, according to His decree, has foreordained what? Whatsoever comes to pass. And this does not negate our responsibility. The sovereignty of God predestination, all of those things do not cancel man's, my responsibility or your responsibility. And why do I bring that up? Because as a footnote, I think we see that here. Jesus' hour had not yet come. This determined time. You know, Galatians 4, 4 says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. I think from other scriptures we could say, in the fullness of time, God saw that His Son would go to the cross. But that hour had not yet come. And yet, what do we find Jesus doing in verse 1? He's walking in Galilee, for He did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill Him. He knew it wasn't His time to die. 
And so the doctrine of predestination, God's sovereignty over all, does not mean that we are pre-programmed robots. It doesn't mean that we are puppets. It does not mean that we are charges on an electrical board. No, God, He ordains the means as well. Prayer, preaching of the gospel to save people and so forth. And so we shouldn't let this glorious doctrine of God's sovereignty, which should be comforting to us, we should not let it intimidate or paralyze us as His children. And so then Jesus knew precisely when and how He should make His way to the feast. And He says that His hour has not yet come. But they are free to go. His brothers, there in verses 7 and 8, He says in verse 7, The world cannot hate you, but it hates Me because I testify that it's worse or evil. You go up to this feast. I'm not yet going up to the feast, but my time has not yet fully come. And so his brothers, they are good to go. They may go. They are to go. Why? Because Jesus says to them, the world cannot hate you. Why? Because they are part of the world. If you look at verse 7, at the end of verse 7, it says, The world hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. Jesus here is talking about the world of unbelief, the fallen world, fallen men and women and children. And he says their works are evil, wicked, morally corrupt, reprehensible. And his brothers are part of this world, just like you and I. When we come into this world, we are part of this fallen, reprehensible, morally corrupt world. And Jesus makes the point, they can't hate you. You're part of it. You're part of their system. That fallen world. In fact, later he will tell his disciples who do have faith in him in John 15, 19, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And so when we who are Christians come out of the world, when we are converted and come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is this chasm and this antithesis, this, this opposition between ourselves and the world. Internally, we have that fight, the struggle. We've been born again. There's new life. We see our sin. We hate it. But also externally, we're part of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Christ, not the kingdom of Satan. And those two are in conflict always until the end. And so here Jesus stands in antithesis against the world, even at this point against his own brothers, and he sends them to the city. And let us pause here and remember what I'm saying, what Jesus says to his brothers here, the world can't hate you, but for Christians, the world will hate you. There will be to some degree persecution. Paul says this right to Timothy, for all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. James 4 and verse 4 says, adulterers and adulteresses do not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God, warring with God. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes him an enemy, makes himself an enemy with God. Christian, brothers and sisters in Christ, 
You need not worry about impressing the world. You need not worry about impressing and receiving the favor of non-Christians. The church makes this her desire at times because of unbiblical views of the way people are saved. That it's all man doing the work. No, it's all God. And uh, therefore, there's any means necessary, it seems, sometimes. And here we are reminded that the world hates us. They may suppress that hatred. You may be on good terms with unbelievers. But there is something that separates you eternally from the unbeliever. Does that mean that we don't love the lost? course not. Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, we're to love our enemies. We're to pray for our enemies. In Romans 12, and verse 20, Paul says, is, is your enemy thirsty? Give him a drink. Is he um, hungry? Then feed him. We minister to the lost. We call the lost to Christ. But as we do that, let us not forget that they don't like us very well. And the reason ultimately they don't like us is not so much because of us. It's because of the truth. It's because of Christ. Jesus says, if they hate me, they will hate you also. They don't like His message. They don't like biblical truth, as we see. And so, I don't know, seven years or so ago, Oz Guinness, a Christian writer and thinker, he said something uh, in one of his works talking about this issue. He said, the greatest enemy of the Western church is not the state or any ideology, ideology as such as atheism but the world and the spirit of the age. He said, the greatest enemy of the Western church is the world and the spirit of the age. Because if the state is at war with the church, we know our enemy. But worldliness and the zeitgeist creep in unnoticed, it seems. We become like the world. And so then Jesus remains back in Galilee in verse 9. That's what John tells us. And yet, in verse 10, it says that he did make his way. It says, when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. This is uh, exactly the opposite way that his brothers counseled him to go. In secret, not openly, incognito, under the radar. And as we see what Jesus does here, retreating, as we see Jesus flying under the radar, um, I think we need to be careful because uh, when we ask the question, what, was, what would Jesus do? I mean, there are certain things he did that we cannot do. Um, but he is the one who pleased his father. He obeyed perfectly the commandments and the law of God. And uh, when we see what he does here, walking under the radar... Um, to put it in the words of Matthew Henry, we may do the work of God privately and yet not do it deceitfully. As Christians, we at times may do the work of God privately, but at the same time we should not do it deceitfully. In other words, if we are called out to bear testimony of Christ, 
Jesus says, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father who is in heaven. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father who is in heaven. And so when called upon, we are to give an account. But it doesn't mean that we have to show our cards all the time under hostile environments. And so then, when Jesus comes, there is this stir. The Jews are seeking him in verse 11. Uh, they sought him at the feast and said, where is he? Why do they want him? Well, they considered him a blasphemer, right? Already. And if you look down at chapter 7, verse 25, we're told again. It says, now some of them from Jerusalem said, is this Jesus? Is this not he whom they seek to kill? The religious leaders already have plotted against and are seeking to arrest Jesus and have him crucified. The people here in the town, they're divided over the person and identity of our Lord there in verse 12. Um, there are those who, after, you know, they're all complaining and murmuring and whispering, speaking lowly, I think is the intent here, uh, concerning him. And some say he's good. Others say no. On the contrary, he deceives the people. And so there's conflict as to who is this Jesus that has made such a stir in this area. He's not a deceiver. That in and of itself is deception. It is a lie. It's from the father of lies, the devil himself. In verse 13, uh, John notes there, however, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Again, the religious leaders. You know, if the leaders didn't like what you did, what you said, they could kick you out of the synagogue. You would be excommunicated. Or worse, as was the case with Jesus. You know, if you associate with Jesus at one point after his death, you become a blasphemer like him and you go to jail. Just read the book of Acts. And so they were fearful. They, they would be censored. They, in our day, would be canceled. And so we see here when, when wicked men cannot refute the truth, I mean, really no one can refute the truth, but... When, we, they, when they don't refute the truth, they cannot. They try to censor it. That's what's happening in our day. It happened in the Dark Ages. Roman Catholics today try to deny this, but there's proof of it. There's evidence of it in their own records and documents in church history where they said that the common man should not have the Bible for fear of misinterpreting the Bible. And uh, these religious leaders, they're trying to control the, quote, discord and disinformation that Jesus has sown throughout Palestine. And uh, if there are those who are silencing their opponents. And in our day, who are silencing their political opponents, you can guarantee that there are those who want to silence the Bible in our day and silence Christians who believe and proclaim 
the Bible. And so we must ask, who is this Jesus? I'll ask you this morning, what is your identity? Who is your identity? Do you find identity and meaning and purpose in life, in your calling, in your work, in your finances, your bank account, your friends, your family? Maybe it's a political group or cause. Sports, authority, power, and money. And who is Jesus Christ to you? Is He merely a good teacher? Only a good prophet that, yeah, the Bible talks about Him. Well, you who are Christian, to you He is, as Thomas said, He is my Lord and my God, isn't He? That's our confession. He is Jesus, our God. The second person of the Godhead, our Savior, who laid His life down for our sins. And if you're here this morning and there's division in your family, um, you need to remember what elsewhere Jesus says. He is our friend. He is our elder brother. We are new creatures in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are members of a new heavenly family. We have brothers and sisters in Christ from every ethnicity under the sun. If not now, that will be the case. And God Himself is our heavenly Father. And as we see those who did not speak out openly, but those Christians who are undercover, incognito Christians, will you speak openly for Christ in our day and time? Will you testify of His goodness, of His truthfulness, of His mercy, of His gospel, of His grace, of His wrath, of His justice? All truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Or... Do you fear man like so many of us can at times? If you fear man, remember Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 25. It says, the fear of man brings a snare. Fear will paralyze you. But whoever trusts in the Lord shall be saved. What is it that rightly identifies us with Jesus and enables us to proclaim the faith boldly. It is faith in the Lord. It is a trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let us pray. Lord, we thank You for this passage of Scripture. Uh, We pray that You would help us to apply it, to put feet on it uh, from the heart, to represent You well, to bring honor and glory to You. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.